The 55th chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah is a chapter that is rich with gospel truth and exhortation. It begins, if you will look with me this evening at the verse number 1, with a call to the spiritually thirsty to come to the waters and find satisfaction for their spiritual thirst in God. This offer that is given to them is a free offer because it invites those to come with no money, to come and buy, to partake freely in the rich and sweet gospel blessings, even though they are in spiritual poverty. It moves on into the verse number 2, where there is a rebuke to those who are seeking this spiritual satisfaction, but they're seeking it in other places. It says, Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good. There were a people, and there was in their heart a sort of a longing for spiritual things, a sort of broad spiritual interest, you might say. But they were seeking everywhere and in everything apart from in the only place that could actually nourish them and satisfy them. And is that not often the picture today with so many people around the world? You meet people when you're out in the streets evangelizing, and you say to that person, or you begin to discuss spiritual things, and they say, well, I'm a spiritual person, and so on. And you begin to get into their background and where they have sought for their spiritual interest, and they've sought everything and everyone apart from Christ. They've sought Buddha, they've sought Allah, they've sought some guru from the eastern parts of the world, and so on. But it seems to be that if they are going to seek Christ at all, He's left until the very end of their seeking. And so there is a rebuke, and it is a reminder to us that the true gospel and its blessings cannot be purchased by our money or by our works. They could buy and invest in these other false gods and these other things, but only true spiritual satisfaction could be found and could be received in the gospel of Christ alone. Isaiah then continues to exhort them, eat that which is good, let your soul delight itself in fatness. And then in the verse number three, he promises them if they heed and they listen and they receive this gospel exhortation and they come without money and without price and they invest in the things of the gospel, that God would bless them. They would pass from darkness into life. In verse number three, incline your ear and come unto me, here and your soul shall live. And there we have the very essential need of man's heart. It's life, spiritual life. We're dead in the trespasses of our sins. We can do nothing that would pertain to spiritual good or spiritual works before God. We need that life. He says, and he goes on to say, I will make an everlasting covenant with you. He would bring them into his covenant of blessing. He would bring them into that covenant of grace, and because they have sought Him and obeyed Him, He would pour out upon them the riches and the blessings of that covenant. Verse number 4 continues on, Behold, I have given Him. Who is the Him? Well, that's the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. I have given Him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. And here, Christ the Messiah, the one who would be a witness to the world, not just through His earthly ministry, but also through His abiding Spirit as well. He, his witness and His gospel would go into the four corners of the world, but also as well He would be a leader in this world through His church. Jesus Christ is the head of His church, 
And as the gospel would go into the four corners of the world, and the church would be planted and established in every single nation across this globe, so the Lord Jesus Christ, with that authority and power, would lead His people into those places. And then He is also a commander to the people. I don't believe you can put a strict dichotomy here, but I do believe there is something of a difference. He is to be a witness to the world, witness through His ministers, through His people as evangelists, but He is also a leader and command or to the people, a leader and commander to the people. He is that leader in the sense that He is the head of His church, but as the commander, He is the king of His church. And not just king of His church, but He is king of this world. He is Lord over all. And so as the entire scope, not just of Christ's people, is brought into view here, but the entire scope of the world is brought in here. Here we see Christ, His witness, goes into all the world, and Christ's dominion through that witness spreads into every corner of the world. He goes on to speak about these nations that would receive this witness in verse 5. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not. It's amazing that as Isaiah is writing this prophecy, Canada is included. Canada is included in verse number 5. As Isaiah writes this, the land of Canada, as we know it today, had not been touched with the gospel. And yet we are that nation that knew not God, and that nation that did not know Him. But there was a time when we did run unto Him through the witness of His gospel, because of the Lord thy God and for the Holy One of Israel, for He hath glorified thee. And so in many ways we could say that Isaiah is prophesying here to these godless Gentile nations. And then in verse number 6, as John Calvin would outline it, he says there is a pivot in the direction of his message back to the people of God, back to the children of Israel. And he's saying there, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord. And the idea behind that is Isaiah was rebuking the people of God. For they had been given the gospel. They had been given these gospel invitations time and time again. And the gospel was now going to go out into all the world. And the nations of the world, the pagan nations, would be converted. And they would come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Israel was still refusing Him. Israel was still rejecting Him. And so he gives this exhortation to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He gives this exhortation to the spiritually dead and the spiritually lost, even within that covenant community, if you would describe it that way. And that is what I want to consider with you this evening. For verse number 6 to 7, I want you to see an exhortation to the lost. An exhortation to the lost. And let's remind ourselves here as well that this exhortation, and I believe Calvin's outline is right in it, that it's being more directed not to the Gentile nations broadly, but to Israel, the people of God, obviously made up of a multitude that were mixed in terms of their spiritual life. There was the invisible multitude, those who truly belonged to Christ, and then there was the visible multitude. But think about it. This is being given to a covenant people, this exhortation. This is being given to a people that would go through the exercises of religion every single day every single month, every single week. This gospel exhortation to the lost is being given to a people 
that if we could bring it into the modern vernacular that would be in church on Sunday morning and Sunday evening, and yet they do not know the Lord. You see, we remind ourselves of that possibility this evening, that it is possible to be among the people of God, but not truly be a part of the people of God. It's possible to come to a church on a Sunday evening or Sunday morning and yet not actually be a part or a member of that church, invisible. It's possible to have some sort of attachment to the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of, well, you follow that ethical code and that guide and, well, this is your God and the pagans of their God and so on. But it is possible not to truly know Him. Not to truly know Him. And so I pray that we would all heed this exhortation this evening and give proper and true examination to our hearts. But before we get into our first point, we also must understand why is this exhortation being given? Well, if I can give an illustration of that, if a doctor was to come to you and say, well, here's some medicine, you should take it, you would rightly respond to that doctor, well, doc, uh, tell me why I'm or why I need the medicine, and I'll take the medicine. And if the doctor persisted and said, no, just take it, just take it, you would rightly dig in your heels and turn around to the doctor and say, well, no, tell me, doctor, why do I need it? What sickness do I have? What danger of death is upon me that I need this medicine? And so it is for those who would hear the gospel, there must be an understanding of why you need the gospel. And the answer is that the the danger of sin is upon you. We realize that the danger of judgment is upon you, that you do have a sickness. It's a spiritual sickness within your soul that's manifesting itself in sin and in wickedness and in an unrepentant heart. So this is why you need to hear this gospel exhortation this evening. This is why you must heed it and obey it. But why is it that there are people And they hear this gospel exhortation and they perhaps even understand their need for this gospel, but they still refuse it. They may understand the reason, but they refuse the remedy. Well, let me give just one of, or a couple of reasons anyway. First one is pride. First one is pride. You could often say, well, that person has an addiction to that certain sin or that certain sin or a a love of this sin or that sin, but But really, the root of the reason and the root of the problem is pride. As the Lord Jesus Christ says, you will not come to me that you might have life. There's a resistance there because the pride of their heart is being manifested in the fact they don't really think that they need the Lord Jesus Christ. They really think, if you were to get to the heart of the matter, that they're fine and they're okay. You should think about the Pharisees that the Lord Jesus Christ ministered to on many occasions, what kept them from the kingdom? It's pride. There was nothing more in many ways that you could teach them in terms of knowledge of Scripture. But their pride blinded them to what that truth and what the Scriptures were actually presenting and teaching. Pride comes before destruction. And for the sinner, and for many a sinner, It has been the sin of pride that has taken them to hell. But also pleasure. Pleasure. We think about those who are enjoying the sins of this world for a season. They realize that they need Christ. They realize their their need of Him. But they are so, and they have so given themselves to pleasure that they will not cut the ties with sin to come to Him. 
Oh, my friend, what an awful hell it would be to be in God's hell in judgment for all of eternity and to say, I sacrificed heaven for the sake of earthly pleasure. I sacrificed an eternity of being in the presence of God Himself for only a moment of earthly enjoyment and satisfaction. Oh, the horrors of the sinner's mind in hell as they think about their gospel rejections, as they think about turning away the offer of mercy, as they think about how they spent themselves for pleasure and pride instead of coming to Christ for salvation. But let's look at this gospel exhortation this evening. As we humble our hearts and see our need, let's see just three things, three exhortations this evening. Seek ye the Lord, call ye upon Him, and let the wicked forsake his way. Seek, call, and forsake. Notice with me, first of all here, we have this very clear and simple exhortation, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. And let me draw just three things out from that text for you as we look at it. First of all, it is personal. Ye, seek ye the Lord. And so this exhortation is being brought, yes, to the children of Israel as a national entity, as a national people, but it is being brought right down to the very individual level. It is required of God for the individual to seek salvation. Your parents will not be able to seek salvation for you. Your grandparents will not be able to do anything apart from pray for your salvation. You must seek the Lord. You must come to Him. Even if you're from a long stock of a godly heritage, yet you, my friend, must come to know the Lord personally. You must enter in at the straight gate. You must walk the narrow way. You must understand and, and receive Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. You must see that there is no salvation in any other name under heaven given among men. It's a personal thing for you. It's personal. And that is why each of us must examine our hearts tonight. Do you know the Lord? Do you know the Lord? Have you been born again? Now, I know the salvation experience and how it is related in our lives is sometimes different. The reality of it is always the same. Regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, and then our glorification. The reality of that and the unfolding of that is the same for every Christian, but sometimes the experience is a little different. Sometimes it can be that there are those on the road to Damascus like, the, the, like, like Saul, and God just stops them midway and they, they see the light and they're radically transformed. There's other times that there are people and they, they grow up in the Christian faith. And they hear the things of God. And as they mature, they, they don't ever remember a time when they haven't trusted Christ or received Christ. Now, does the difference in experience mean the difference in the reality that's taken place? No. The reality is still the same, that they have been regenerated, converted, and so on. But the experience in that sense can differ. But my friend, we must examine ourselves this evening. Is there and has there been true conversion in our heart, regardless of what experience may have, there have, may have been? Has there and is there a desire for repentance from sin? Has there and is there a desire to seek Christ? and depend on Him for salvation alone? 
Has there and is there a desire to pursue holiness? You see, so often the, the emphasis is put upon the experience and not necessarily the fruits of the reality. Is there in your heart tonight the fruit of the reality of the new birth? Oh, it must be personal to you. But then notice as well, it says, Seek ye the Lord. Here, very clear direction is given. It is the Lord who gives salvation. It is God who saves. Salvation is of the Lord. And there must be, as we come to God in faith, there must be the rejection and the complete turning away from anything that would justify us before God. Now, as Reformed Christians, we know this, don't we? That's soteriology 101, that you're not saved by works, you're saved by grace. And yet, my friend, we know it, but how hard it is to live it. How often we think to ourselves that, well, I've kind of been good this week, and therefore God will receive me. But oh, I've, I've done some sin, and even though I confess it and forsake it, yet oh, they're, they're, God must be harboring something against me. Oh, it's easy in many ways to know the cliches of the gospel, but how difficult it can be to apply them to our heart. As we come to the Lord and we seek the Lord, we're not seeking someone who is like you and me. Someone who perhaps can harbor something against us. Somebody that can hold something against us. We're not coming to the one that somehow will, in, in, in some ways, you know, I forgive you and then, you know, several years down the line, bring it up again. No, we're coming to the Lord. And He's full of mercy. He's full of pardon. He's full of grace. He is the one who takes our sins and casts them behind His back. He is the one who blots out our transgressions. He is the one that completely has outpoured His wrath upon Christ, and Christ has drank the cup of the wrath of God dry. And so, sinner tonight, come to the Lord. Come to the one full of mercy, and come to, with Him or to Him with all of your sins and all of your transgressions, knowing He forgives fully and freely and greatly. But notice the prudence that there is in this text as well. It's personal Seek ye. The person that we seek is the Lord. Seek ye the Lord. But notice this. While he may be found. While he may be found. And here we come to something that is mysterious. I will admit that. How God strives with an individual. And yet, how God can also for a time strive with them and yet withhold himself from them. It says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. We have a double emphasis on that. Call ye upon him while he is near. And the idea can only be here that there is a time when you may seek the Lord and he will not be found. That there is a time when you call upon him and he will not hear. We look at his Hosea chapter number 5. Hosea chapter number 5 and the verse number 6. The background to this is that there is judgment coming upon Israel and Judah. God has time and time again through the prophets called the people to repentance and reformation and they have not come. And now in light of the impending judgment, the people are now going to God. 
Now, they're not going to God out of sincerity. I think that has to be highlighted very importantly. They're not going to God with sincerity. They're going to God just out of the sense of self-preservation. And notice what it says in verse number 6, they shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek the Lord, but they shall not find Him. He hath withdrawn Himself from them. What are they doing with their flocks and herds? They're going to sacrifice. They're going to engage in the worship of God. They're going to offer up to God these spiritual sacrifices before Him. And yet the Lord is not there. And God does not receive their cry. Now we know from Scripture that those who genuinely seek the Lord will find Him. But my friend, there can be times and instances when the Spirit of God can strive with an individual and there can be a measure of the conviction of sin upon their life and that individual can strive against the Spirit and resist the Spirit until such a point that God withdraws Himself from them. And so if even they do come and seek the Lord in the future, it's not genuine. It's not true. Because the Lord has withdrawn Himself from them. And that is a very troublesome and solemn thing to think of this evening. That there could be somebody here tonight and the Spirit of God could be striving with your heart and could be speaking with you and you know genuine conviction of sin and you know you need to be saved and yet you're resisting out of pride or pleasure. And then all of a sudden it stops. And there's no more conviction and there's no more guilt, and your conscience is no longer troubled, and the time for you to seek the Lord is no more. Oh, I pray that you would seek the Lord while He may be found. While He may be found. You say, when should I seek the Lord? When should I seek Him now, today, at this very moment? Seek Him as you're under this gospel exhortation, as His Word is being preached to you, as you feel the Spirit moving upon your soul. Seek Him even now even in the very pew where you're sitting, call upon Him while He is near. The question can also be then, well, how do we seek the Lord? If there is a time in my life when the Spirit is moving, and there is that knowledge that I need to be saved, how do I seek the Lord? Well, you seek Him through prayer. You seek Him through prayer. You seek Him through His Word. You come and you you read the Word of God, ask the Lord to minister and speak to you. But you also bring yourself to the very place that God dwells. You bring yourself under the preaching of the Word of God. There's no better place for you to be when under the conviction of sin than among the people of God, than in the very presence of God, than under the gospel exhortations that would be given out. It's not a time to remove yourself. It's not a time for you to say, well, I'm just going to have me and my Bible and I. No, come, bring yourself in among the people of God. Bring yourself in where the place where God will dwell. But also seek the Lord, especially through His means of providence. When times when God would draw near in sickness or in death, in others, in tragedy, and those providential circumstances are just speaking to you, they are a knock on your heart's door they are a reminder of eternity that is coming closer and closer. The Lord did give us this wonderful promise in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7 that if we seek Him, we'll find Him. 
Now, that's not contradicting this text where it says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found, or Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 6 where it says the Lord was not found of them. Because in those cases, the people were not seeking him in sincerity. They were not seeking him in truth. They were seeking him for other reasons. And you are not guaranteed, my friend, as you're under this weight of conviction and you're under this weight of guilt, you're not guaranteed that that will continue. You're not guaranteed that that same conviction and weight will come upon you on your deathbed, in your closing moments. And so you must seek ye the Lord while he may be found. But notice, secondly, call upon him. Call upon him. A similar truth is expressed here. We must call upon the Lord while he is near. But let's think about that first of all, this, this verb to call, this action. I, I think it involves, first of all, a sense of meditation a sense of meditation. If you're going to call, there has to have been some formulation of thought. There had to have been some understanding or meditation or thinking about what you were going to say. And this can be either audible or it can be inaudible, either outwardly or even inwardly. But there has been a thought about what we are going to say. And so, as you go to call upon the Lord, what should you say? What should you say? What should have been your prior thoughts? Well, can I point you to verse number 7 where it says, let the wicked forsake his way. There ought to have been a meditation. There ought to have been an understanding that you're wicked, that you're a sinner, that you're guilty before God. There ought to have been an understanding, a meditation. I need to leave my sin. I need to repent of my sin. And there ought to have been a meditation of thought upon the mercy of God and the pardon that He can give. Oh, as you come to seek the Lord and as you come to call upon Him, let these be your meditation. Let these thoughts be your meditation that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And that Savior stands willing to pardon and to forgive but you're calling upon God, and you're calling upon Him for salvation. As it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 8, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this is a call, a call unto God, save me. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be very difficult. It doesn't have to be intertwined with theology and so on. But you, but you think about it. You think about Peter. Peter stepped off that boat, and he had only but little faith, and he just cried out to the Lord, Lord, save me. Simple prayer. Lord, I'm in danger. You can help me. Save me. It was as simple as that. As simple as that. You think about the sinner, or the publican in the temple in Luke chapter 18. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. A short prayer. And yet what happened? God heard him, and he went home justified. Oh, this call, my friend, is not, and it does not have to be some proficient expounding of doctrine or, or, or even theology, but it's a simple call upon Christ to save you and to rescue and deliver you. And then we must call upon Him while He is near, while He is near, while the Spirit of God has drawn close, 
While the Spirit of God is drawn close and the Lord Jesus Christ is near to you because the Spirit is working upon your heart, oh, my friend, call upon Him while He is near. There are those that say, well, like Felix in the New Testament, the book of Acts, when I have a more convenient season, I will call for thee. And yet, my friend, we never read of a more convenient season ever coming for Felix. We realize that Felix trembled. He trembled that day at the preaching of Paul as Christ was presented to him, and he trembled, I believe, under conviction. But he never found a more convenient season. And so it may be with you that as the Spirit strives with you and strives with you, you might say to yourself or think to yourself, well, when a better season comes, whenever things are better in life or more settled down, then I will give myself to Christ. But my friend, the Spirit is striving with you now. Now. And you're not guaranteed that the Spirit will come and disturb you and trouble your conscience again. Others will say, well, I will call upon Him upon my deathbed upon my deathbed. And yet you look to the cross of Christ. There hangs upon that cross, in the center cross, the greatest evangelist this world has ever seen. And yet only one of those men came to Christ. Only one of them. The other thief died and was lost. And not only that, but you think about all those people around the cross. And only the centurion saw that he was the Son of God all the others went past, mocking, reviling him. Oh, my friend, you are not guaranteed anything of a deathbed repentance. You are not guaranteed that the Spirit will work upon your heart. You're only guaranteed now, as the Spirit is exhorting you through this word, as you hear this gospel exhortation and Christ is speaking to you through the power of His gospel, you must call now. You must call now. Others tempt God. Say, well, God, I want more proof for signs. And if you, God, do this, then I will call. Oh, my friend, do not tempt the Lord thy God. Do not tempt Him. I was reading a while ago concerning the testimony of Count Viscount. He was a Scottish lord of that nobility. And he was so troubled and guilt of sin that he entered into a period of weeks before he would die where he was concerned about his soul. There had been an issue in the parliament where he had not stood up for the truth and righteousness, and he had actually faked an illness and he left and went back home. And he was not troubled for a year, but as he became sick, he began to be troubled. And he entered into a period of weeks where he did not know if he was saved or lost. And you read the agony of that, my friend. A man in his deathbed going through the terrible struggles. Am I saved? Am I not saved? Is the Lord, has the Lord dealt with me? And so on. My friend, there's nothing nice about a deathbed repentance. You see, people have the idea, well, they live a life of sin, and then just before they die, Lord, forgive me, and they'll enter into glory. My friend, well, first of all, that's a sign that you are not converted, if that's what you truly want. But also, my friend, there's no guarantee that you will depart from this world having peace of conscience and soul. 
Now, that man, that man did eventually get peace of conscience just before he died. But oh, you read the terrible struggle and turmoil of soul that he went through until he came to that peace. But thirdly, this evening and finally, turn to the Lord. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Here we are met with a subject of repentance. Repentance. Here we have a description, first of all, of those who are called to repent. They are the wicked and they are the unrighteous. They are those who have seen themselves for what they are. They are those who are not exaggerating what they are, but have simply acknowledged what they are. That they are wicked. That they are the unrighteous. And if we are to ever taste and see that the Lord is good, we must first look at ourselves and see that we are not. If we are to ever receive the wonder of forgiveness, we must realize the need that we have for forgiveness. It does concern me greatly when I hear the testimony of those who profess Christ. And I'm speaking here in the broader church circles with those I have met over perhaps this past year. And you, you ask them directly, can you tell me your testimony? And they would normally say something, well, you know, I was going through life and then you know, the difficulty came and, and God was there for me in that difficulty. And yeah, you know, I just I want to follow Him and, and so on. It's like, there's no mention of sin. There's no... There's no mention of, of any guilt, any working of the Spirit upon their heart to, to bring about this understanding that they need Christ. There's no actual mention of the gospel. Any old pagan could turn around and say that they had some sort of experience where they went through a difficult situation and their God was there for them and now they want to follow Him. That, that's any old pagan could say that. It's the gospel where the Christian says, I was wicked and unrighteous and I was dead in my sin and I by the Spirit of working in my heart, I realized my need of Christ, and I called upon Him, and He saved me. That's a testimony. That's a gospel. My friend, as you think about your own professing testimony, is there an acknowledgement of sin? Is there an acknowledgement of the very need and reason for the gospel to have reached you? But notice then also the character of this repentance that the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord. His way, his way. It's a broad term, a description of the entirety of a man's desire, the entirety of his wants and his ambitions, which were set towards sin and wickedness. What does he do? He leaves it. It's gone. He turns his back on it completely. There is a 180 in his life where he leaves aside all of his old fleshly, earthly wants, desires, ambitions, and he says, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? But then there are his thoughts as well. You might say that when he forsakes his way, that's more of an outward thing. But his thoughts, this is not just an outward change, but this was an inward change. He changes his thinking. He changes how he thinks. He no longer gives himself or gives himself to those wicked thoughts, but he gives himself to godly thinking, godly reasoning, to a Christian worldview. The entirety of his thinking capacity is submitted to Christ and to his lordship. 
Repentance, my friend, involves every part of us. In everything that God hates, we must repent of. But also in every part of us, we must engage that to repent. Our mind is involved in repentance. Our will is involved in repentance. Our body is returned in repentance. Everything must be engaged in the entirety of us to turn away from everything that is evil. And my friend, this is the gospel exhortation that is given to you. If you are to come to the one who can satisfy your spiritual thirst, what must you do? You must leave the other marketplaces. You must leave the other places where you're spending your money for that which is not bread. And you must come to the free offer of grace and receive that invitation from Christ. You must turn. You must come to Christ. But also in repentance, there should be sorrow as well. True repentance is always signified by a grief over sin. A grief over sin. Oh, that tonight that the Spirit of God would show you what God thinks of your sin. And that in seeing that, that that would bring from you true repentance unto life. It's a wonderful little phrase that, repentance unto life, as our catechism puts it. It's not just repentance into some sort of vain hope. No, it's turning from sin and turning to the one who is the giver of life that takes you and makes your soul alive. Verse number three. Do you have that life within your soul? Do you have the life of God within the heart of man? Do you know what it is to suddenly have an interest in the spiritual things? The Psalms and the hymns before, you sang them as mere lip service, but now your heart is engaged. You weren't dabbling in the worst extremities of sin because, well, that's not how you were raised. But now you want to really live for righteousness. Oh, that there would be true repentance, a true turning to the Lord. I give you these verses in closing. As God's exhortation to you, seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call ye upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the righteous man his thoughts, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. My friend, why would you reject that gospel this evening? Why would you reject the, the exhortation that God is giving to you, especially when the promise of mercy and pardon is given? Notice this what it says. He will have mercy in you. He will withhold his wrath from you. He will withhold his judgment and He will abundantly pardon. I love that word, abundantly. It could have been sufficient for the Spirit to write, He will pardon. But no, He adds in to signify this gospel of grace that He abundantly pardons. All of your sin, all of your transgressions, every sin, everything that you've done against God, it's all pardoned. It's all cleansed underneath His blood the wicked sins and the wicked defilement that you have engaged in, abundantly pardoned. Oh, my friend, do you feel yourself too wicked tonight to be saved? Do you feel yourself too far gone into sin to receive mercy? Well, look to that word, abundantly. 
And seeing that, that gospel promise for you, He abundantly pardons all of your sins, all of your iniquities, to the very worst of the worst and the lowest of the low. Oh, my friend, there is no sin. Apart from the sin against the Holy Ghost, there is no sin, my friend, that is too great or wide that cannot extend the abundance of His pardon. There is no sin that you have committed so shameful and so vile that God and His abundant mercy cannot forgive. Would you not come tonight and seek Him and call upon Him and turn from your sin and receive even before you leave this meeting tonight His mercy and pardon. Let's sing.